Hey everyone, and welcome back to Practically Zero Waste, a podcast for making zero waste living as practical as possible. I'm your host, Elspeth Callahan, and today I chat with Camille Shane, host of Green Dreamer Podcast. In this amazing conversation, Camille dives into regenerative agriculture, why it's important, and why it's not a new concept to live in sync with nature rather than at odds with it. She goes deeper into intersectional environmentalism and re-indigenizing the landscape to offer place-based solutions to climate change rather than a one-size-fits-all method. It is such a great conversation, and if you're dying to hear more after this one episode, head over to the Green Dreamer podcast if you're not already a big fan like me, and start listening to almost 300 episodes of incredible content. The connection with our call was a little shaky off the start, but it gets better as you go, so give it a listen and let me know what you think. Ready to regenerate the land and the way we think about the earth? Let's go. How did you begin your ever learning low impact journey. I think that's something that uh, is a phrase that you used on your website a little bit, um, is that you're always learning in this journey. Yeah, always learning, always trying to do better as I learn more. Um, I would I would say, I personally call it conscious lifestyle journey, just because I'm constantly learning more. And um, it's really relative what is considered low impact. And I can get into the word impact later on, uh, but I started, so I was born and raised in Taiwan and I, I had always been environmentally curious. I would say I watched a lot of national geographic and animal planet and things like that. And was just really fascinated with this wild, wild world that's out there. So in high school, I had some opportunities to go to conservation programs and to be a volunteer. So I volunteered at the sea turtle conservation mm. and the panda conservation in Um, China. And those kind of solidified my interest in this field. But I would say that my initial interest was more innocent and out of just learning about how, you know, all these animals and plants and species are endangered and are going extinct. And that didn't feel right. So I was like, Oh, what can I do to help? But I didn't really understand how deep rooted and connected all of these issues are. So when I went to university in St. Louis in, in Missouri, I studied psychology, environmental studies, and marketing to kind of explore environmental studies more deeply, but also my interest in human behavior and um, how this ties together with the business world. That's what I studied. And at the same time, I got really hooked onto fast fashion because as a college student, I really loved to creatively express myself through my fashion choices and obviously with the cheap price tags of fast fashion that's what sort of allowed me to do this more Mm -hmm. and um so I was definitely I would say hooked onto fast fashion for the first few years until I later picked up a book called The Ecologist's Guide to Fashion by Ruth Stiles and it was an easy read but it, it just was about these two worlds that I loved. So fashion and the environment. So I was like, oh, like I never put these two pieces together before. And I read that book and that was definitely a light bulb moment for me because I learned um, a lot of pretty wild statistics. I don't know if I learned this from there, but definitely that was the starting point where I learned things like it takes about three years worth of drinking water to make enough cotton for one single t-shirt for conventionally grown cotton and that just blew my mind like this one t-shirt that is that might be 10 bucks at a fast fashion store it took three years worth of drinking water for the average person in order to 
grow enough cotton for this one thing that's worth yeah. 10 bucks. So that just really didn't line up for me. And then, mm-hmm. of course, I watched the True Cost documentary that a lot of people watched as well. Um, heard about the Rana Plaza factory collapse. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, all of this just kind of takes you down this rabbit hole where you learn one thing and you're like, oh, crap, like there's more to it. And you learn something else and you learn something else. And that's just kind of how it got started for me. Yeah. And I like what you said about how it's not so much about calculating your impact, because no matter what, there's going to be an impact and that's kind of a complicated term, Um, but that living consciously, um, you're becoming aware of all these different facets of how we can live better for the planet becoming aware of those things you're able to kind of like pick and choose as you are capable like as you have the ability to do something about the problems that are facing you or that you're faced with you're able to kind of do something according to like what you have the energy for what you have the finances for the leisure time for and not to say that we shouldn't do anything that's not what I'm saying but you know the it is overwhelming the way you're describing it um how you kind of came onto this journey uh feels like there was a lot of eye-opening moments that would have been stressful for you (laughs) yeah and I think that's very relatable for a lot of people because once you start learning one Mm -hmm. thing it just never ends because Mm -hmm. there's so many there's so many interconnected issues and to go back to the word impact I recently wrote about this on Instagram but um, whenever people talk about human impact or our environmental footprint like these words have already taken on by default, negative connotation. So mm-hmm. impact is supposed to be is supposed to mean negative impact, and footprint is supposed to mean like a, again, like a negative impact. So my question was like, what are we assuming about our human roles on the planet if we presume human impact to be bad? Because there are thousands of cultures around the globe that do have an impact on their environment, but they're doing things that are actually regenerating life and biodiversity and creating more habitat for the wildlife that's there. So I would personally like for us to shift away from presuming the word impact to automatically be bad. And to, you know, if you want to use the word impact, be more descriptive. So like lower my negative impact. But how about presuming and, you know, reclaiming our roles as regenerative humans that are one part of this planet and we're not separate from this this web of life we're one part of it and just as increasing diversity of species in any ecosystem adds to its overall resilience and complexity and balance and overall health like we can play our roles as one part of this uh, greater planetary ecosystem as well and really add to it and become a synergistic force to the environment So that's kind of where the impact word stuck out for me. Yes, I love that. And that's something that um, I think that I've heard recently, just starting to reframe uh, the way that I've been looking at how humans are meant to, we're all part of the same nature. We're all part of nature. We're not separate from it. So it's not like either we're working to protect it in a patronizing way. We're not looking to protect it in a um, we're better than it sort of thing. It needs our protection. In reality, we are all part of this big ecosystem and that we have to think of ourselves as part of it in order to get back to that, yeah, synergistic, harmonious connection and reality uh, with our planet. What I was thinking is that a lot of times the reductionist messages from environmentalism, like mm-hmm. do less of this, don't do that, don't do that, etc., that sort of leads to beliefs that, you know, 
the best things we can do are maybe to just retreat into our corners, not go out, do less of everything. (laughs) And that that by even existing and breathing out carbon dioxide, we are, we were born a source of destruction. And that we're separate from the planet, play the same dominant worldview that led to the exploitation of the natural world to begin with. So I think we have to start from the very core of how do we reshape our worldviews to seeing that we are in fact integrated and one part of this greater whole. Mm -hmm. That's definitely something that I've found your podcast to focus on all along. That word impact standing out to you, maybe that's a more recent thing, but all along you've been trying to have that health and wellness perspective for both us and the planet uh, all encompassed. Can you tell me a little bit about Green Dreamer and how long that's existed for? Yeah, so I started Green Dreamer in May of 2018, so it's been two and a half years almost at this point. For me, like I was saying, I was initially pretty overwhelmed by all these mm-hmm. doom and gloom issues that I was learning about the world, social, environmental, with our public health, and so forth. Uh, and so I started recognizing that I was always most inspired and activated when learning about solutions and what other people were working on using their unique sets of skills and talents and backgrounds. So at that same point, I was listening to a lot of podcasts myself and really loved that format for learning because I could learn, you know, while driving, while making breakfast, while out on a walk. So I just loved being able to take this form of learning and education on the go wherever I went. And so I was like, oh, now that I'm feeling so overwhelmed, like, I would love to start a podcast interviewing people who are working on different issues that would hopefully inspire me and better inform me in terms of what I can do, but also hopefully help others as well who felt similarly as I did, feeling really overwhelmed and not knowing where to start. And to sort of showcase that we all have different backgrounds and talents and skill sets, but there's always an entry point for us into this space. So I was hoping that by interviewing a really diverse range of people, people could see themselves in parts of th- this discussion and be able to find their way in. Yeah, that's that's so funny. That's exactly how I feel about my podcast <laughs> and how uh, <laughs> I actually started in July of 2018. So I'm just a few months behind you. You cover so many different amazing topics. And one of them I think that you're really into is regenerative agriculture. Is that something that you can tell us a little bit about and why that's significant for both health of the planet and our own health? Yeah, so we know that obviously there are a lot of issues with our current food system, and Mm -hmm. that has mostly stemmed from our current agricultural system being degenerative. So they, in a lot of cases, they compromise biodiversity with these monocultures of, you know, the exact same crop on acres and acres of land, or hundreds of acres of land, and that's not what is good for the health of the ecosystem because if we think Mm -hmm. about thriving ecosystems they're teeming with biodiversity and life and wildlife so just looking to monoculture it concurrently degrades the soil and at this point we know that i believe the the united nations estimated we have about 60 years of topsoil left if we continued our current practices so that means we have probably about 60 years of harvest for food production left. And that is really alarming because that could oh be in our lifetimes. Yeah. Um, so topsoil is basically that really healthy 
nutrient-dense layer of soil that is teeming with microorganisms and life. Uh, in one teaspoon of healthy soil, there are more living microorganisms than there are humans on Earth. What? So it's alive, and yeah, it's crazy, wow. right? So conventionally, conventional agriculture has sort of been farming the soil and has been extracting from the soil mm -hmm. rather than really taking care of the soil and seeing that as the root and the foundations of a healthy agroecosystem. So from monocultures to destructive agricultural practices like over tilling the farm. Oh, wow. Yeah. To even animal agriculture and confining, which again is not what is best for the health of the animals, nor is it the best for the land because they need to be working and existing synergistically together, not separating these elements of nature that are supposed to be one of the same whole. Yeah. So basically all of these different things have led our agricultural system to be degenerative and to lead to soil erosion, degradation, pollution, and so forth. And it's not so much the what, it's more so the how. So it's not that we're planting this type of crop, it's how we're doing it. It's not that cows are inherently bad, it's how we are, you know, confining them mm -hmm. into feedlots and feeding them something that's not natural to their diet and not allowing them to exist on grasslands where they're supposed to be, where they could exist in a regenerative relationship. So those are a lot of the issues. So regenerative agriculture kind of gets to the root of a lot of these issues. And I know a lot of people are familiar with organic by now. That just basically means that the farmers aren't using synthetic pesticides on the crops. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't biological forms of pesticides used. Ooh. And biological pesticides might be harmful to our health as well, because pesticides essentially are made to kill. So yeah. um, there's that. But regenerative really goes a step further to recognizing the importance of soil health and rebuilding degraded soil and also diversifying the landscape, bringing back a lot of diversity onto the farm, planting cover crops so that the soil is never exposed to the atmosphere. Because if you looked at a thriving ecosystem, it's not really natural for the soil to be, you know, just barren and yeah. bare and exposed because mm -hmm. you want to be caring for that soil by rebuilding healthy soil this is really important right now because obviously with with the climate crisis people are wondering you know how, how a lot of people talk about how do we reduce our emissions but while we reduce our emissions which is really important we also have to recognize that we've been disrupting our carbon cycle that cycles that carbon back within the biosphere oh. so we've been disrupting this carbon cycle by, again, through degenerative agriculture, through deforestation, through habitat conversion and things like that. So part of how we can rebuilding healthy soil and having more diversity and plants. And then, yeah, so basically regenerative agriculture rebuilds healthy soil, sequesters carbon dioxide. I think there are even studies showing that if we converted all the farms to regenerative farms at this point, like we could reverse global warming and wow. I don't remember the specific numbers but there basically is potential for us to draw down all the carbon emissions that we emit per year by converting all of our current degenerative farm systems that contribute to co2 emissions to regenerative ones that sequester co2 that's amazing so yeah there's a lot to it <laughs> yeah that's something that is on the list of top 10 project drawdowns I've always had trouble saying that project drawdowns list of 100 <laughs> uh, ways that we can draw down carbon from the atmosphere and reverse climate change. I think that regenerative agriculture is 
right on top of the list, eh? Because, yeah, like you said, that would have a huge impact. Are there big players who are working towards that, like that are maybe some resources that people can check out if they want to learn more? So Kiss the Ground is a nonprofit that works with a lot of farmers and they're supporting farmers to transition towards regenerative agriculture. Right. And there are plenty of other ones like Rodale Institute. There's the Regenerative Organic Alliance that's working on creating a certification so that consumers can distinguish regeneratively grown food products and support that if they have the financial means mm-hmm. to because obviously it would probably be more costly. And then... What else is there? I would say those are some of the few that pop into my mind as the first things. But there is one thing I will mention is that, well, recently there was the film Kiss the Ground that was released on Netflix. And a lot of critique has been on minute documentary. People of color, experts of color are only featured for less than five minutes altogether. Wow. And so that stirred up a lot of discussion around how a lot of the regenerative land stewardship practices promoted within regenerative agriculture are actually rooted in indigenous cultures around the globe mm-hmm. that view the soil and the land and water as being inherently alive as relatives that really need to be taken care of and honored and um, revered. So this idea of having a sense of reciprocity with the land is rooted in a lot of in. Well, so has been, there's been a lot more research done on this area in the recent years. So it isn't until the recent decade or so when some of these practices of really caring for the soil have resulted in actual scientific findings on how, oh, this does sequester carbon mm-hmm. or, yeah. you know, there are this many microorganisms within the soil and they're alive and they're really important. So this raises a deeper question of like, why does indigenous knowledge, which has been built and developed over thousands of years, why do they need to be validated by Western science in order to be deemed legitimate? And now that it has been validated, it's mostly Western scientists or white farmers that get to talk about leaders it. Yeah. of this field. Yeah. And I think part of this also goes back to our disconnection from nature. So regenerative agriculture today is largely a response to the degenerative the degenerative forms of agriculture that is rooted in colonial extractive systems. You know, things like indigenous rights, while they may not brand themselves as practicing regenerative agriculture like regenerative practices are rooted in more holistic forms of restoration for a lot of indigenous cultures so whether we're talking about indigenous sovereignty food sovereignty land restoration food isn't necessarily seen as separate from the greater ecosystem itself mm-hmm. and it's also not seen as a separate thing to take care of compared to their indigenous rights and their health The main thing is that regenerative agriculture is about agriculture as something within the food system itself to mend. So it specializes on that. But while for a lot of indigenous communities, the ways that they're restoring the earth and regenerating healthy soil might not be branded under the term regenerative Mm -hmm. agriculture, it is a part of what they're working on as they 
struggle and fight for indigenous sovereignty, indigenous rights, because they are connected to the land. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of faith-based earth stewardship knowledge that is really important in aiding regeneration. And that's also something that I feel like is left out of the field of regenerative agriculture is cultivating these re-indigenized views of the landscape and having a place-based relationship to this specific landscape that you're in. But essentially for a lot of indigenous communities, they might not have called themselves, you know, we practice regenerative agriculture, but as a part of their work to heal themselves as people who've experienced a lot of trauma and to heal the traumas that their lands have experienced by the same colonial extractive systems, they're doing this in a more holistic manner that connects all the dots of biodiversity, cultural diversity, people's health, and the health of this specific bioregion that they reside in and call home. It's so much a reflection of my uh, white ignorance or white privilege. As a white woman, I am kind of embarrassed to not not have thought about how colonialism is still so present even in agriculture now. So in what way is this environmental conservation a product of colonialism as well? From the very beginning, the establishment of many of our national parks at least in the U.S., like Yellowstone, Badlands, Glacier, and so forth, was used in part as a means to remove and displace many Native American communities from their ancestral lands. Wow. So environmental conservation stemming from that colonial disconnection from the land has these false ideas of pristine wilderness that, like, don't have any people within that ecosystem, as Mm. if, again, human impact on the wild is inherently negative. Right. When we know that on the East Coast, indigenous peoples there often enrich the biodiversity of their landscape through the ways they built fish weirs that provided more habitat for wildlife. Mm -hmm. And so they were obviously displaced from the violence of settler colonialism, but also in the name of environmental conservation the intentional burns practiced by hundreds of tribes in California, including the Yurok, Karuk, Huba, Miwok, and Chumash, these intentional burns were suppressed. And these were intentional burns that actually renewed local food and cultural resources, created habitat for wildlife, and lessened the risk of more severe and dangerous wildfires. So the increasing number and severity of the wildfires in California and on the West Coast today Yes, climate change leads to changes in weather patterns and might prolong droughts and um, increase the risk of wildfires, but also the suppression of these regenerative intentional burns also leaves a lot more combustible dry matter in the forest so that when it does start to burn, it's going to be a lot more destructive rather than regenerative. So overall, when Western environmentalists try to take this top-down approach to conservation, trying to find one-size-fits-all solutions, as if forest management practices from Europe could be just applied straight to Turtle Island and the American continent, Mm -hmm. as if there's such a thing as the most sustainable diet, the most sustainable fiber for clothing, the most sustainable fuel for energy, all of these, I would say, myopic solutions to ecological degradation stem from the belief that there is such a thing as the best xyz that can be applied broadly rather than recognizing the diversity of landscapes and diversity of cultures that exist on on the earth and it more so being about fit rather than best so if we're finding if we're talking about finding the solutions best fit for a certain place 
I don't think we can look to these generalized environmental impact assessments for the answers. Mm -hmm. And we need to be relearning the place-based biocultural knowledge and history of the bioregions that we're in, ideally directly from communities that are indigenous to where we are or people who have relearned and re-indigenized their worldviews. So I really think that we have to learn to reconnect with place and I would personally argue that supporting indigenous rights, reparations, food sovereignty, and the repatriation of their lands have to be a part of this equation as well. And that is absolutely the way that environmentalism has to be intersectional now. Like it's not just about plants or it's not just about packaging or it's not just about all of these really feeling like superficial levels of uh, how we can save the planet in our arrogance and uh, ignorance. I think that talking about um, racism and environmentalism and obviously I'm late to the game with this as far as like just this year bringing this conversation to the fore but like it's honestly about if we're able to focus on the people who are on the planet that we're trying to save then if we're caring for people with the same level of care that we're saying we should be caring for the planet then we wouldn't likely have as much of this problem yeah and a lot of the same systems that have been degrading our lands are the same systems that have been oppressing black indigenous and people of color so Mm -hmm. i think it's really important to take a step back to see how they're all connected like it's such a a powerful connection to make for people if they're looking to like not to say that everybody who is listening to this podcast in particular is still on the kind of like beginners your always swaps level of entering this environmental conversation but what can we do to help people take that next step and start to look at environmentalism through the lens of intersectionality and be able to not feel overwhelmed by the crushing imminence of like we only have 60 years left of topsoil and and things (laughs) like that like I know we have to feel a little bit of pressure in order to get things done but like what are some next steps for people after this conversation do you think yeah so I mean a lot of the issues that we talk about are largely systemic so there's always this idea of like oh how much do my individual little swaps matter when there are these systemic changes going on but there is researched from psychology showing how it is important for us to start with those little steps because they start to you know reshape our identities we start to believe oh I'm somebody who cares about the environment I'm somebody who's taking action for the environment so what is the next thing that I can Mm -hmm. do so I think it is really important to start from the little things that are very much within our reach to do and to start there and then as we start to learn more we do want to think about you know how can we change these oppressive systems and extractive systems themselves and so a lot of people go into the political realm but then our political system today at least in the U.S. and I'm sure in (laughs) other places around the globe as well poor U.S. it seems to be yeah it, it seems to be incapable of correcting course on its own and addressing its broken foundations that are so deep rooted it wants sort of incremental change while at the same time, corporations are continuing to have a stronger stranglehold on the government and Mm. wealth disparity is continuing to widen. So I don't think there's an easy answer when we get into this, but I do believe that supporting community-led initiatives that are working on building food sovereignty and, you know, supporting community gardens, urban gardens, turning, if you're a landowner, 
or if you have a front yard, even if you're renting, perhaps turning your lawns into victory gardens or into regenerative meadows that are low maintenance, but that are beautiful and are much better for the ecosystem than lawns, which apparently in the U.S. is the largest irrigated crop, which I didn't know. Oh my gosh, your lawn. (laughs) Yeah, so all the private lawns and maybe public too, but all the lawns added together makes lawns the largest irrigated crop or grass the largest irrigated crop. Plant a garden. So they are chemically intensive and water intensive. So this is something really cool too, is that people can look into turning them into meadows, which is cost saving and they're beautiful. They will attract beautiful pollinators and so forth and provide a habitat Mm -hmm. to your regional wildlife. So that's something people can look into doing as well. Um, There's a book on that called Lawns into Meadows, if people want to learn more about that. And there are a lot of resources on victory gardens and growing food. So I'm sure you can find a lot as well Mm -hmm. on that. And then also donating to community building organizations. So I do think obviously remaining politically engaged is really important, but also beyond that, I think we have to work to build power away from the political itself. So whatever we can do to reclaim our power and agency for the people. And right now, a lot of people are reliant on these multinational monopolized food giants um, and grocery stores and stuff. But imagine uh, I think it was for World War II when 45 percent of food in the United States was grown within people's backyards wow, and victory yeah. gardens. So imagine if we could kind of work towards that again and be able to provide like half of the food that we need to consume within our very own communities. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of a way that we can because it's so hard to get these huge corporations that are too big to fail at this point to change and to pressure them to change, I think there's a way for us to build our own community-based resilience to the point where we don't have to be reliant on them for like almost all of our needs and we can starve them out from the bottom. Yeah. That makes sense. Starve the corporations, feed the people. I love, yeah. I love that that is like just such a wonderful form of action because right away you can do your individual action you take it to the next level and you get um, politically engaged but you know that you're just beating your head against the wall so then the next step is to feed the people do something in your community expand your bubble uh, to include the wider group so that you are able to build resilience and like defer power or take power away from the larger corporations i think that that is um so inspiring and I was just wondering about like lower income groups I don't want people to feel stressed that they can't break free of the cycle of needing to go to Walmart for their groceries because to do all the work of growing their own food would feel too inaccessible in the short term yeah I mean I never shame anybody who has Mm -hmm. to do certain things just to get by I think we just do what we can we all start from different places yeah so obviously people with the with greater privilege of time and money to you know vote with their dollars and support regenerative agriculture through buying more extent more expensive regenerative regeneratively grown foods then that is a way to get started because by supporting that once regenerative agriculture is able to take over conventional agriculture mm-hmm. hopefully the price will lower and then of course there's also the issue of why we tend to ask you know why is this so expensive rather than why do we have people who are working jobs but still can't afford their basic you know survival needs so there are definitely political things to look at there in terms of 
maybe supporting minimum wage, uh, an increase in minimum wage, or you know things on that front to make sure that people that people aren't working three jobs and still can't get by. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then in terms of growing their own food, it doesn't have to be you know, you don't have to grow literally everything on your own. But if you even if you just did it as like a leisurely activity, you don't mm-hmm. even have to buy seeds. If you were to maybe start saving seeds from the fruits that you eat from the vegetables that you eat, you can even grow food crops with food scraps. So with the carrot tops, if you just chopped the very top and left that carrot top, you can essentially place that in water, add water to it, and you'll watch the leaves on top start to grow mm-hmm. out. And then you can transplant that to a little pot when you when it starts to grow upwards. So there are a lot of fun things where you can, you know, experiment with, you know, maybe as an activity with the little ones in your family as well. It could be a fun thing to do together as a family project. Mm -hmm. Uh, So saving seeds, growing food from food scraps. These are things where you don't even have to purchase seeds to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, So these are some other things that you can do as well. And then composting at home. And then in terms of community gardens for places that are food deserts, there's a really great nonprofit called Trap Garden that I recommend supporting and donating to if you have the financial resources to do that. But they're working towards building community food gardens within places that currently might be struggling with food apartheid or food deserts where they don't have access to healthy and fresh food. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. For anyone who's wondering about all the different um, things that Camille has been able to uh, share as resources today, then they'll all be in the show notes for you to reference to as well. Who are some people that are inspiring you lately that you would like to share with others, either in regenerative agriculture, you've listed a lot of resources there, intersectional environmentalism, or just in general that you would love for more people to know about? Um, I would say every guest that I've had the honor of yeah. <laughs> interviewing on the show before, there are just too many people that inspire me with mm-hmm. what they do. There are some recent ones that jump out to me right now. So Dr. Vandana Shiva on the podcast for Green Dreamers, she talked about philanthrocapitalism and, you know, this new form of colonization that Bill Gates is embarking on. That's a lot to get into, so I'll just leave that there. Check out her book, Oneness Versus the 1%, where she dives into all of this. And if you want to check out that episode as well, I think it was episode uh, 261 on the podcast. Great. And then also Sean Sherman of The Sioux Chef. He is a Native American chef working to revitalize Native American foods and re-identify North American cuisine. Because wow. in the United States and largely across the Americas, you could go to any big city and, you know, experience cuisines from all over, all around the world. But there are so little or none at all restaurants of cuisines that are native to that region. Yeah. So he has this, yeah, he has this vision of, you know, what if you could road trip across the U.S.? And instead of stopping at these, you know, multinational diners like McDonald's and Burger King and things like that, that are all homogenized with the exact same ingredients and exact same menu across the entire continent, what if you could road trip across these landscapes and everywhere you went, you got to dine at a restaurant, dine at a diner that reflected that local region, yeah. um, that local region's native cuisines and native ingredients, and at the same time, learn about that indigenous culture that have this place-based relationships relationship to the place and you know 
be able to experience the landscape as you travel, essentially. So that's like a really beautiful vision. Oh, I think that's so cool. Wow. Yeah. So definitely go to support him as well. He has a nonprofit. Uh, I think it's the long name is Native American Traditional Indigenous Food System, but it's the acronym is NATIFS, so N-A-T-I-F-S dot org. That's where you can find and support his work uh, to build this vision. And uh, the final thing I'll recommend is Gather the Film. So oh, great. it's a film that follows for uh, indigenous food sovereignty activists and people who are working to reclaim their uh, indigenous uh, cultural practices, their food ways, their sovereignty, and so forth. So that is a it's a really beautiful film to understand sort of the biocultural connections to the land that I talked oh, about earlier yeah. and ways to look at regeneration in a different way, in a way that is about reconnecting with the landscapes and healing people while we heal these landscapes. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to check those out. And this was such a great conversation. I feel like there's so much more to learn about each one of these topics that you were able to speak to today. Um, And so uh, I'm looking forward to putting all of those resources together for other people um, to check out. And thank you so much for chatting with me today. Camille, this was so cool. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you would like to hear more from Camille, like I said, there's years worth of content available on her website and her podcast, Green Dreamer. You can find links to that and her social channels in the show notes, as well as all the resources she references in today's chat. If you like this episode, you'd probably also enjoy episode 26, Sustainable Agriculture with good old Uncle Bill, episode 76, Savoring Resources, and episode 86, Rewilding. You can find all of those and more in our archives wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to everyone who has supported and continues to support the show, either by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, or by buying me a virtual cup of coffee over at coffee.com slash Callahan. Every bit of your support is so appreciated. So again, thank you. That's all from me this week. If it's springtime where you are, I hope you consider turning part of your lawn into a beautiful meadow and growing your own food this year, because every bit helps in increasing food sovereignty and regenerating the land around us. I also want to encourage you to remember, wherever you are, to learn from those around you to reacquaint yourself with the land and how we can work together with it in harmony. Have a great week, everyone, and talk to you soon.